If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. And we're going to spend some time this morning reflecting on these ancient words that the Gospel writers have left us about the ministry, the teaching, the words of Christ. Last week we saw Jesus teaching a multitude of people, well above 5,000. And we saw Jesus perform a miracle that astounded everyone who was there, astounded even his own disciples who had just come back from healing sickness and casting out demons and preaching the kingdom of God. And yet Jesus takes two small fish, five little loaves of bread, and he feeds a crowd of well over 5,000 people. And after this time, Jesus withdraws in private with his disciples. It's kind of a rare opportunity for Jesus and his disciples to get alone. And verse 18 of Luke chapter 9 says, Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, He asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the father and of the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we have these few minutes that we have this morning to read your word, to listen to them, to let them sink deeply into our thoughts and to just meditate on what they mean, how they apply to our lives as your people. And Father, we pray that uh, you would open our hearts, open our minds. May we have eyes and ears that can see and hear and understand what your word is teaching us. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would do his supernatural work in our hearts. And that is to break up our hard heartedness and to plant uh, in our hearts, the seed of the word of God on good ground. And Lord, may it grow and produce fruit uh, for your glory, for your harvest. We pray this Lord in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus, during this time in his ministry, was no doubt the ultimate newsmaker. 
you probably couldn't go anywhere in that whole land of Judea, Samaria, Galilee, that whole region without at some point in the conversation, the person of Jesus coming up. Whether you're walking down the road, whether you're at somebody's house for a meal, the whole land was a buzz with Jesus talking about what he was doing, talking about what he was saying. Jesus could not go anywhere without drawing a huge throng of people. A crowd of 5,000 people was waiting for Jesus when he got off the boat from the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was the talk of the town during that time in his ministry. And we saw earlier in Luke chapter 9 that the news about Jesus has reached the palace where Herod lived. Herod was the political leader of Galilee at this time under the authority of the Roman Empire. And Herod had been hearing reports about this man, Jesus, from Nazareth. All kinds of different reports. Some were saying, this man must be John the Baptist, come back to life, because he's preaching with boldness like John the Baptist. But Herod knew that could not be, because Herod was the one who himself had John put to death. At the insistence of Herod's wife, John was put to death. He was beheaded because John had dared speak the truth against Herod and against that marriage, which was unlawful. And so Herod had him put to death. So he said, this can't be John. Others were saying, this is Elijah. Why would they say that? Why would they say this is Elijah? Well, Elijah never died, did he? The Old Testament story of Elijah leaving the earth is being caught up in a whirlwind, in a chariot, a fire. And Elijah is never said to have died. And so really throughout all of uh, Hebrew history and on through the New Testament, there has been this uh, thought of Elijah at some point coming back again. Even Malachi the prophet says at some point, Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so maybe people thought, this is Elijah. This is what the prophet Malachi said. Others said, no, he's one of the other great prophets who has come back to life. Maybe Isaiah or Ezekiel or Elisha. And so Herod was hearing all these reports and these rumors, but he never got answers. He wanted to see Jesus for himself. But even when Herod did get the opportunity to see Jesus, he wanted nothing to do with him. And he sent him away and he sent him back to Pilate. And so that portion of Luke's gospel in chapter nine that we looked at earlier with Herod receiving all these port, all these reports, it really ends without an answer of who this Jesus is. Well, in our passage this morning, Luke is going to provide for us an instance in which Jesus confronts his disciples with some of those same rumors, some of those same questions that were circling about the identity of Jesus. And so they're gathered in private. Jesus was praying with his disciples and he looks up at them at one point and he says, who do the crowd say I am? What's the, what's the rumors? What, what are people saying about me? And they gave the exact same answers that Herod been, had been hearing. Maybe John the Baptist, maybe Elijah, maybe another prophet come back to life. But then verse 20 takes us where Herod didn't have an answer. 
And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, who do you say I am? So I've heard the news. I've heard the rumors. I've heard what all these other people are saying about who I am. But I want to know who you say I am. And the you there is emphatic. What do you think? What do you believe? What are your thoughts? And as we see often in scripture, Peter is the first to speak. And Peter says, you are God's Messiah. Or some translations might have it, you are the Christ of God. What is Peter saying there? He is saying, you are the anointed one. Whether it is the word Christ, which is the Greek term, or Messiah, which is the Hebrew term, they both mean the same thing. And that is, they both mean anointed one. And so Peter is saying, you are the one. You are the one prophesied from Genesis 3.15. The one who would crush the head of the serpent while his heel is being bruised. You are the one that Isaiah talked about. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53. You are the, the new David coming to sit on David's throne. You are the Messiah, the anointed one of God. This is the first time in Luke's gospel that the disciples have made that statement. We've heard that, that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the anointed one. We've heard it before in Luke. The angel said it. Even demons have said it in the gospel of Luke. But this is the first time from the mouths of Jesus' own disciples that they say that they acknowledge who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is the one. And so he is not just another prophet. He is not Elijah. He is not John the Baptist. He is unique. He is special. He is the long-awaited prophesied Messiah. He is the anointed one of God. And in verse 21, Jesus tells them to not tell anyone about this. You think that seems odd, doesn't it? Why, why would Jesus not want his disciples to tell everyone that he was the Messiah? He'd already sent them out, right? Preaching, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. So it's not as if Jesus doesn't trust them with a message. He trusts them with a message. He wants them to proclaim the message that he has given them, the good news of the kingdom of God. But he doesn't want them to specifically say that Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah of God. Why? Well, one, probably probably the most likely reason is that if they were to go out and publicly proclaim, this is the one, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus would not be able to really do ministry at that point anymore. If if you think his life is chaotic now with all of these throngs of people coming to find him, even when he gets off a boat from the Sea of Galilee, if the news starts to spread, that he is the anointed one. He's going to be so caught up in the public uh, movement that he is not going to even be able to do his own, his ministry of preaching and healing. 
and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And really what would happen is he would probably be put face to face with a confrontation with the Roman authorities. Why? Because of what the common perception of the Messiah was in Jesus' day. Jesus is not the first one who had come who was claiming to be the Messiah. You can read Hebrew history, Jewish history in the time before Jesus and even after the time of Jesus, leading all the way up to the time of AD 70 when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, there were many false Christs. There were many who came saying, I am the one. But the interesting thing about many of those false messiahs, false Christs who came claiming to be the one is that they were all zealots. They were all zealots. They were all political zealots. They were all trying to stir up uh, people to join their cause uh, and to try to to drum up a movement that would uh, create a following that could push back and rebel against the authority of Rome and try to restore Israel back to its independence and its own autonomy as in the glory days of David or Solomon. So for a lot of people, their perception of Messiah was a military hero, a, a political leader, a, a charismatic leader who would gather people and then, and then raise Israel up to its glory. Jesus doesn't want that, that concept spread around. Because as he's about to reveal to his disciples, that is not his mission. That is not the Messiah that Jesus came to be. Jesus did not come to be a political zealot or a military leader or a triumphant victor in battle. Jesus came to be a suffering servant. He came to be a suffering Messiah. And so he reveals to them in verse 22, the son of man must suffer many things. By the way, the son of man, even that title is messianic. You can go back to Daniel chapter seven. And in this vision that Daniel has in chapter seven, he sees the son of man in the clouds of heaven approaching the ancient of days and unto him is given a kingdom. And so this language of the son of man is very messianic, very prophetic from the language of Daniel. And so even the use of this term affirms that Peter is right in his uh, confession that Jesus is the Messiah. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, we know from other gospel accounts and we're, we're even going to see it in Luke just a little bit down the road that the disciples did not understand when Jesus said things like this. They couldn't put it together. They couldn't make sense of it. it. To them, it was like two plus two equals five. It just, it, 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 they don't go together. It doesn't make sense. On the one hand, they are correct that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus affirms that. In Matthew's account of this confession of Peter, 
Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right. And flesh and blood can't, can't know that. That's not something natural that we can come to that conclusion. That has to be revealed from heaven, Jesus says. So flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my father who is in heaven, he revealed that to you. The knowledge that Jesus is the Lord, he is the Messiah, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, can only come by the spirit of God. Only by the spirit can someone say that Jesus is Lord. And so Jesus affirms that Peter is right, that the disciples are right. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one of God. But then in the very next breath, he says, now I'm going to suffer and be rejected by all of the leadership of Israel. And then I'm going to die. That two plus two doesn't equal five. That that doesn't match up. There was not in this time a, a, a firm understanding, a clear grasp of how first the Messiah must suffer and then enter into glory, as Jesus says to the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. First, there is suffering, Isaiah 53. Then there is glory. Then there is triumph. The disciples didn't understand that. And so many times when Jesus would predict his own death like this, they couldn't figure it out. They didn't understand it. And Jesus here not only predicts his death, he also predicts his resurrection. And on the third day, be raised to life. Why? Because this is a part of the sovereign plan of God, isn't it? Yes, there were many human actors involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. Herod's going to play a role. Pilate's going to play a role. The Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, the leaders... All of these people are going to play a role. Judas Iscariot, they all play a role, humanly speaking, in the crucifixion of Jesus. But it is a part of the eternal, unchanging decree of God that it would happen. So that the scriptures can say that Jesus is the lamb lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This is why Jesus can predict it. Because it will certainly happen in the almighty plan of God. And he can also certainly predict his resurrection. Because it too will happen in the almighty plan of God and on the third day be raised to life. And what Jesus is revealing to his disciples here is that the anointed one of God is on a mission. And that mission is to come and to die as a sacrifice for sins. So yes, Jesus is the anointed one of God. But Jesus is teaching his disciples here and they're not going to fully understand it yet. It's going to be a growing understanding that doesn't really flower until after Jesus' resurrection. But he is teaching them here that Jesus has come as the anointed one of God, but on a heaven-sent mission, a prophetic mission, to come and to give his life as a ransom for many. To come and to die as a sacrifice for sin. And then in verse 23 and following, Jesus is then going to call his disciples to discipleship. And it's based on who he is because Jesus is the anointed one of God who came to die as a sacrifice for sin. He is fully worthy. He deserves the highest loyalty and sacrifice from his disciples. Jesus saying to them, I am going to suffer 
And if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be one of my disciples, then you too will suffer. And what makes Jesus worthy of that following, of us following him into suffering, following him into costly discipleship is based on who he is. The Messiah of God, the son of God, the one who will die and suffer for us, for our sins. He is worthy of our loyalty and sacrifice. And so he says to them in verse 23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the father and of the holy angels. What is what is Jesus saying to them here? He's saying to them that to be my disciple is costly. It's costly. And before I start explaining what Jesus is saying here, I want to make sure, affirm, that we understand that in a New Testament sense, New Testament theology, there is not a distinction between a believer and a disciple. It's not as if there's some kind of two-tiered Christianity where the first tier is just simple faith and you can believe, but it doesn't really cost you anything. And then sometime later, if you're really serious about Jesus, then then you can commit to discipleship. There is no two-tiered Christianity. There is, if you're a disciple, you're a believer. If you're a believer, you're a disciple. A believer is a follower, is a disciple. That's New Testament theology. We don't have this distinction between different levels of Christianity. And so what Jesus is saying here, and the reason I I point that out and want us to understand that is because that means that what Jesus is saying here, he's saying to all of us. He's not saying this to just some super group of Christians. He's not just saying this to the 12 and that it no longer applies to anybody after the 12. He's saying this to all followers of Jesus, all believers of Jesus of every age, every disciple of Jesus. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. What is a cross? A cross is an instrument of death, isn't it? A cross is an instrument of death. In that time, it was the most shameful, maybe for all history, for all we know, it is the most shameful, humiliating, and even painful way to be executed as a criminal. It was a horrific execution. It was put on public shame, public humiliation in front of everyone. Then there was also the physical agony and pain of the torture of hanging on a cross until you slowly died. It was miserable. The picture of the cross was a picture of suffering. And I think sometimes we lose that. 
We don't think about that. We wear crosses around our neck on necklaces. We wear crosses and jewelry. We have crosses and emblems in our homes. And sometimes we don't think about the fact that that emblem represents death. That represents suffering, the suffering of our Messiah. But also here in verse 23, verse 23, it represents the sacrifice that he's calling his disciples to, to take up their cross daily and to follow him. What does that mean? It means following Jesus into whatever, right? Following Jesus into whatever the cost, whatever the calling that Jesus places on our lives, no matter how heavy, no matter how strong, no matter how difficult, no matter how much suffering will be involved, that is what Jesus is calling his disciples to, to daily take up their cross and follow him. As Paul says in Romans We die daily. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. This confirms in verse 24 that Jesus is not talking about some super level of Christianity here. He's talking about all disciples, all believers, because if you don't follow Jesus in the way that he's talking about here, then you will have no life in the end. There's no eternal life for those who do not take up their cross and follow Jesus. And Jesus is presenting a very clear choice, a very clear option to his disciples in verse 24, when basically he is saying, you can have your life now or you can have it then. You can have your life now or you can have it then. And which one is Jesus giving the emphasis to? That is the good one. The one they should long for is the life then, right? Which is like completely upside down from a very popular book, right? Your best life now. Some health and wealth preacher likes to say. Your best life now. No, Jesus says your best life then. Your best life then. Yeah, you can live a life of luxury and ease right now. You can have all of this world's pleasures. You can have wealth. You can have fame. You can have sex. You can have drugs. You can have alcohol. You can have whatever you want. Just live it up. Live your life the way you want. Enjoy all of this world's pleasures. But that's all you're getting. Because in the end, if that's how you live your life, in the end, you will lose it. There will be no life then. Or... You can take up your cross daily and follow me and lose your life now. Enduring the sacrifice, enduring the hardships, enduring the humiliation that comes at times with being a follower of Jesus. And even to the point of, if need be, to die as a martyr, not forsaking Christ. And Jesus says, if you follow me and give up your life now, you'll have it in the end. You'll have it for all of eternity. What good is it if someone gains the whole world and loses or forfeits their very self? We we have heard that verse before as loses their own soul. What good is it if you gain everything that this world has to offer, but you lose your life in the end? You lose your eternal life, your eternal soul. 
What's the point? What have you gained? Nothing. As Ecclesiastes reminds us, all you've gained is something that you're going to give to someone else when you die and that you're not going to take with you. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says, and you're even going to give it to somebody who didn't even work for it. You're going to work all your life and gain all this stuff, and you're just going to hand it to somebody who didn't even earn it. Why gain the whole world like that and yet lose your soul, lose your eternal life? And Jesus makes the, the, the point very clear in verse 26. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. That's the judgment day, isn't it? That's the second coming. That's the judgment day. On which side do you want to be on on Judgment Day? Matthew 25, do you want to be on the side of the left hand of the goats that go into eternal destruction? Or do you want to be on the right hand side of Jesus and of the sheep who are his, who belong to him and go into eternal life? What about somebody like Peter, who very boldly confesses in verse number 20, you are God's Messiah. That's right, Peter. But on the day that Jesus was dying, was being tried as a criminal, Peter was saying, I don't even know who you're talking about. Was Peter ashamed of Jesus that day? He was, wasn't he? Peter was ashamed of Jesus on that day. But aren't we thankful that our eternal life is not dependent on our own faithfulness, but on the faithfulness of Christ? And that even though Peter says, I don't even know who you're talking about, and he denied even knowing Jesus three times on his crucifixion day, yet after the resurrection, Jesus brings Peter close, and they have a meal together, and he says to Peter, I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to shepherd my lambs. I want you to to be there for my people. And three times Jesus says that to Peter, feed my sheep. Why? Because three times Peter said, I don't know who you're talking about. Jesus reaffirmed Peter. And then just a short while later, we see the most dominant voice proclaiming who Christ is coming from Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two, when Peter is no longer ashamed and he stands up and says, this person that you just crucified, that is your Messiah your Lord, your Messiah, and you just put him to death. So I'm thankful that Jesus calls us to costly discipleship, but it's not as if Jesus expects us to be perfect in that because he knows that we will not be. And our ultimate eternal life, our ultimate security is based in the will of God and is based in the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Jesus saves us. We do not save ourselves. But for those that Jesus saves and calls to himself, they follow him. And they follow him wherever he leads, even if that means leading into difficult paths of life. Jesus said in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Those who hear the voice of Jesus, they follow him and go where he leads. And he is worthy of that, isn't he? Because he is the anointed one of God. 
He is the long-awaited Messiah because he is the one who came as a sacrifice for sin. He deserves the highest loyalty and sacrifice from his disciples. He's worthy of it. And then Jesus concludes in verse 27 with kind of an enigmatic statement when he says, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. And there have been different theories about what Jesus means here. Does he mean that all of the disciples are going to stay alive and remain until the time that Jesus comes back in his glorious kingdom? Well, that did not happen. That final consummation fulfillment of Jesus' kingdom has not yet happened. All the disciples have died. What does he mean here? Well, the consensus appears to be an understanding that what Jesus means is that for a few of his, his disciples, they're about to get a glimpse of the kingdom of God. Because it's interesting that right after Jesus says this, there are some here who will not see death until they see the kingdom of God, that in all of the gospels that record that statement, the very next thing that we see in all of those gospels is the Mount of Transfiguration. So that what Jesus perhaps is likely referring to is that Peter, James, and John, this inner circle of Jesus, they're going to be the ones whose eyes are going to see Jesus in all of his glory, transformed, transfigured into his brightness right before their very eyes, like the brightness and the glory that Jesus will have in his future kingdom. And Peter, James, and John get a glimpse of that in their lifetimes. But then for all of them who are Jesus' disciples, they'll be with him in glory too, in the kingdom of God. Jesus calls us to discipleship. He calls us to sacrifice. He calls us to take up our cross and follow him. And so my question to us this morning is this, how much are we in love with the world? How much are we in love with the world and how much are we in love with this life? That is a soul-searching question. Because for every single one of us in verse 24, where Jesus says, if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life now, for me, you will save it. And the question is clear. Do you want the pleasures of this world, of this life, or do you want the enjoyment of eternal life in the kingdom of God? You can worship this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, or you can worship Christ and long for his kingdom and his righteousness. The right perspective is what Jesus gives his disciples in Matthew chapter six. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things, they'll be added to you. So it's not as if we don't need a place to live or food to eat or clothes to wear. It's not as if we don't need those things, but let that not be our focus. Let that not be what drives us. Let that not be our love, our, how we define our identity, our purpose in life. What ought to define us, our identity, our purpose in life is Jesus and the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And these other things are so subservient to that. They're inconsequential. And Jesus will provide them in his providence. 
So how much are we in love with the world versus how much are we in love with the kingdom of Christ? Let us all seek our own soul, our own hearts and search as we think about how to answer that question. And may God draw us closer to himself in discipleship and following Jesus because he is worthy. Let's bow in prayer this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the almighty, righteous, holy creator God. And Father, even though we have sinned and rebelled against you, and in our own hearts, we're deceitful and wicked and rebellious. And yet, Lord, you have shown incredible, abundant grace to us in sending your son, the anointed one, the Messiah of God, sending him to come to seek and to save that which was lost to come and to give his life in exchange for us, to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, I pray that if there's someone here in this room or watching that you have not yet called to yourself and awakened their hearts, I pray, Lord, that you would do that by your spirit, through your gospel, that you would awaken them to faith and that they would hear the voice of the Son of God and that they would live and that they would come and follow you. Father, for those of us who are here and acknowledge the Lordship of Christ and that he is the Messiah, he is our Savior, Lord, may we recommit ourselves to walk in the paths of Christ, to follow in his footsteps and to take up our cross daily and follow him and to long for not the things of this world, but to long for the things that are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Father, compel our hearts to seek first your righteousness and your kingdom, and not the things of this world. Father, we thank you for the work that you're doing in us individually and collectively as the church of Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would accomplish your purposes through your word today. In Jesus' name. Amen.